Thank you for joining me for our next fireside chat, part of the first day of our Global Supply Chain Week, our maritime focus day here for Global Supply Chain Week at Freight Waves. My name is Kaylee Nix, and today we are speaking with the leader of the South Carolina Ports Authority, President and CEO, Jim Newsom. Jim, it is so great to have you. We're talking a little bit about what it takes to lead a port, a port system through the success that you guys saw in South Carolina this year. Thank you for being on Global Supply Chain Week. It's great to be here, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. So you guys in South Carolina just had kind of the magic sauce. You guys had it figured out when it came to dealing with all the port pressures that we've seen the last two years, and really just the stress on the global supply chain that has come through COVID-19 and through the increased demands of the consumer and just our supply chain stress as a whole. Let's start kind of broad and give us just a little bit of insight about where South Carolina sits in terms of the general U.S. port system. Well, we're the eighth largest U.S. container port. We handled about 2.75 million TEU in, in calendar 21. Um, and we invested significantly in our infrastructure, really, you know, from when I joined the port. But on a more focused basis from 2015, we built a new container terminal, the Leatherman Terminal. And then we invested significantly in our existing major terminal, the Wando Terminal, to be able to handle big container ships. So, and, and that was all before we knew anything about a pandemic or, or, or what that might portend for the, for the industry. So I think it gave us a reasonably good shot to to be capable to handle increased volumes, although we've had our challenges as well. So a lot of that investment comes from strong leadership, and you've been in place at SCPA for a while. Let's talk about kind of how you've been that leader throughout your time with South Carolina Ports Authority and how you yourself have driven the port forward, not only through investment, but looking at the overall state of the supply chain. Well, I'm a big believer that growth is the essential part of any business. So we we really defined that we had to get on a growth track when I joined the port. We had to grow well above the market. And, and we certainly thought that was possible because the Southeast is, in a way, the best place to be in the port industry. We have population growth and we, we manufacture and we have land for distribution. So we thought our fundamentals were, were good. Uh, we had to prepare to handle uh, big container ships. That was the challenge that all ports face. And we knew that we had to do that. And I guess as a leader, what you have to do more than anything else is sort of articulate a clear vision of what winning looks like and then get the team on board and then get the interested stakeholders. You know, we're a state-owned and operated port. We had to get everybody galvanized to to a common vision. And then obviously our type of infrastructure requires a lot of investment. So we really had to make sure that we could grow enough and earn enough money and borrow enough money to to make the needed investments to to stay as a top 10 port. So you guys are number eight when it comes to size or to volumes handled, or how do you guys determine that uh, different ranking when you look at? So we, we, the only real comparable way we can measure is on container volume. So that's on TU volume. We were number nine. We passed the port of Oakland in, in calendar 21. Um, to reach eight. And I I think what's significant is that you have to be a top 10 port today to be able to invest the amounts of money that are needed to be in the the major container business. And you'll see that 85% of the cargo in and out of U.S. ports is handled by the top 10 ports. So I don't think it's possible to to grow from outside of that league to, to be in that league. 
So during the extreme stress from COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw consumer demand absolutely skyrocket. We saw record import volumes in pretty much every port in the United States. And we saw a lot of ports that were really struggling to keep up with the demands that the demand was putting on them. But you guys were a little different. You guys had the opportunity to accept freight that should have gone to other places. And you said, no, bring it here instead, because you guys were able to handle that. What were the main difference makers in being able to accept some of that freight that was destined for other destinations? And by accepting that, how were, did it bring any unique challenges um, through accepting that extra freight? Well, you think about it, Kelly, we, uh, you know, we didn't know what to expect going into the pandemic, you know, two years ago, I actually thought our volume would be down about 10%. As it turns up, it's up, it turns out it's up significantly. And, and, you know, so we were ready infrastructure wise to deal with that. What we knew was that, you know, about 60% of the import freight was going through three major gateways in this country. So we felt we had the ability to, to handle some of that load. Uh, think about it. A port has two obligations. One is to get ships in and out fast, get the cargo discharged. And then once the cargo is discharged, you get the cargo out to the final uh, consumer who needs that cargo. Uh, and you really have to do both of those well. So we did benefit from the fact that there was some congestion in other ports. Uh, but then that has, to some extent, created some congestion in our port currently because if you think about it, we're putting 20% more cargo through what is essentially a finite supply chain in terms of fixed warehouse capacity, truck capacity, chassis capacity. So so we have our struggles today as well, which we're getting on top of in terms of, of making sure we get the import cargo out in time to clear space for more arrivals. And so those downstream or semi-downstream bottlenecks are some things that I think a lot of folks around the industry, specifically on the government side, are trying to work on, right? It's not necessarily the problems with the port operations themselves, but what happens after that container gets unloaded at the port because you can't move it out if you don't have the trucks, the chassis, the drivers, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about where you think the proper space for focus is on port congestion problems, not necessarily specifically in South Carolina ports, but really just ports as a whole in the United States? Well, I think we have to see the import supply chain is a, what I call a zero-sum game. Um, and it starts with having distribution center capacity. I mean, if you think about it, it's record, you know, we're importing about 2.5 million TU a month. And all that cargo is ordered because someone ostensibly needs it. But yet what we're seeing when it gets here today, there's no place to put it. So there's not enough distribution center capacity. The, where, the container is a mobile warehouse. So it's used as a surrogate for distribution capacity and those containers back up on the terminals. And there's really not enough truck capacity, not enough chassis capacity to overcome that, even if there were enough distribution center capacity. So there are no quick fixes. I mean, some of these ideas like having truck drivers drive 24 hours a day, that, that's not going to work because uh, truck drivers can't do that. So we've got some long-term solutions that we need to do. I mean, one is obviously making container trucking more attractive, making it possible for 18-year-olds to aspire to be truck drivers. One is to dramatically improving the quality and quantity of chassis and international chassis in the United States. And the third is investing in relevant infrastructure. And I would suggest to you, again, we built the only new container terminal since 2009. It opened in 2021. The next terminal will open after 2030. 
So I believe there needs to be more terminal capacity in ports, but I also believe there needs to be more inland terminal capacity that's rail served where you can ground containers because you can't keep handling all these containers in just 10 port locations, basically. So there's a lot to do, but there are no quick fixes and no one should be under the illusion that this can just magically be fixed overnight. So you mentioned the opening of the phase one of the QK Leatherman terminal that you guys opened this year. And talk a little bit about the future phases for that, if you can. So this is phase one, what's coming next, and how is that going to help with supply chain stress in the future? Well, everything helps that that improves capacity. So the Leatherman Terminal is a $2 billion investment, and you build terminals in phases. So we built phase one as a one-birth terminal, um, and that opened in April of, of 21. And that obviously it provides another berth and it provides 700,000 TUs a year of, of storage area uh, for containers. So that's important. Um, it's underutilized today. We have one service over there. We need to get another service over there. We have a dispute with uh, the ILA about our operating model, which we will you know, need to resolve. And we're working on that. And then we'll build phases two and three of the terminal, which is a Phase two is a a second birth. Phase three is a third birth. And we'll build phase two in two components, one of which is to accommodate an intermodal container transfer facility that we're building just adjacent to the Leatherman Terminal. So by 2033, depending on demand, we should have a, a, a new terminal, the Leatherman Terminal, that is the same capacity and capability as the Wando Terminal. So that intermodal terminal that you're building alongside, that's really interesting, and it shows the the really necessary intersection between the different modes of transportation to push things forward. Can you talk about the partnerships with the different companies that you guys have to have in order to make something like this successful? Well, absolutely. I mean, we do very much rely on modal convergence. I mean, we've got to be in sync with the railroads and, and rail is an efficient way to grow commerce through a port. And we don't have the perfect rail infrastructure today. We, we don't have near dock rail at the, the Wando terminal that was precluded by the permit in the 80s. So we needed to come up with a creative solution. And that is building a dual served intermodal facility near the Leatherman terminal, where the containers that go into Leatherman could go on a private access road. And then we'll also serve that intermodal container facility with a barge from the Wando terminal uh, through through Leatherman to, to the ICTF. So very creative solution, probably not the cheapest solution in the world, but uh, it's necessary and, and, and it, we have to grow our rail infrastructure here to be able to grow as a port. We do 20 to 25 of our percent of our business by rail, and that certainly doesn't need to decline. It needs to increase. So making those investments obviously takes a significant amount of money and a significant amount of work to get that funding in place. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the infrastructure bill that was passed at the end of 21 and if and how any allocated funds from the infrastructure bill will funnel into the American port system specifically to help you guys at STPA. Can you guys expect to see any of those that funding funneling down to further the mission of investment for you guys? Well, we certainly hope so. Um we, I think there's 17 billion that's earmarked for ports. So if you put that in context, our new terminal is 2 billion. So you could, I mean, to be disrespectful, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. And our experience in previous such bills is that 
they're not really suitable for projects that you need quickly. We don't build infrastructure that we need in 10 or 15 years. We're building infrastructure that we need now. And our impression is, and I hope we can be proven wrong, is that the money that's available cannot be used that quickly. There's just too much red tape uh, to deploy it quickly. You have to sometimes get a new permit. There are a lot of Buy American requirements. We don't make container cranes in the U.S. today, as an example. So there are a lot of there's a lot of red tape. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that we can use some of it. We certainly have a lot of opportunities available, and we're engaging in dialogue with anyone who will listen to to see if we can unlock those opportunities. And so, along with side with those opportunities, you guys provide a ton of employment opportunity for the state of South Carolina. And let's touch a little bit on that and how huge of a resource SCPA is in South Carolina ports are as a whole to being this potential for employment and this really just crucial industry for South Carolina. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting point. I mean, and we see that really in two dimensions. So from a direct employment perspective, um, they're between the Port Authority, our direct employees, which are about 900 in the ILA, which has close to 5,000, the union, um, you know, that's almost 6,000 direct employees right there making very, very good wages, you know, over $30 an hour. And then you take the cadre of truck drivers and warehouse workers. Walmart's building an import distribution, has built an import distribution center in Ridgeville that will employ a thousand people. So easily over a thousand direct jobs, which are, are good paying jobs. And then the indirect factor, I mean, in, in the in the world of global supply chains, companies locate near great ports. So we have done in a study, the University of South Carolina did a study that said one in 10 jobs in South Carolina are linked to the port directly or indirectly, meaning BMW is here because of the port, Michelin's here because of the port, et cetera. So it's a huge economic impact. I think it's the, the number one economic driver for the state uh, and, and critical to our future. And looking ahead into 2022, you guys are coming off, of, as you mentioned, the banner year of 21. Do you have any big time goals for what you guys want to accomplish in the first quarter, at least as we're moving through and still seeing this incredible stress on the supply chain that really just hasn't abated even post-holiday 2021? Yes. I mean, we obviously need to continue to improve the fluidity in the supply chain. We, we have too many long dwell imports on our terminals. We need to, the key to increasing fluidity in the port is getting imports off your terminals in a timely fashion. We need to we need to redouble our efforts to do that. We're doing that in every way, shape, or form that we can. We're using barges to move long dwell containers off the, our main terminal, the Wando terminal. And then beyond that, we have to realize some of these critical infrastructure objectives. Obviously, the, the intermodal container transfer facility is top of mind there. And then getting on with phase two of the Leatherman terminal. We're also doing an innovative investment in a new chassis pool. We're going to run our own chassis pool here starting mid 2023. Uh, we've invested about 200 million in new chassis, and we think that's quite a creative way to improve the supply chain. And so, towards kind of the end of Q3 last year, the announcement was made that you will be outgoing in the middle of 2022. So I just wanted to ask you really quickly, what type of legacy do you hope that to leave at SCPA? And is there something from your time leading the port that really stuck out to you as a huge major accomplishment besides being amazing during 2021 and securing all the investment that you have? 
Well, we've had several major accomplishments. I mean, obviously, the inland port in Greer was critical. I think it set the standard for rail-served inland ports. Uh, doing a world-class deepening project to get our har- to get the deepest harbor on the East Coast, and then obviously improving our infrastructure to handle um, big container ships. But I think the most important legacy was just the commitment of the team here to to grow our port to to be the best port that we could be, and sort of to not take no for an answer, basically to get to yes and in, in the way we go about our business every day. So I think it's been a fun 13 years, the longest I've ever stayed in a job. Uh, it's time to do something different, and and I've got a great successor that's that's uh, fully ready to take over. Well, we are excited to watch what you will continue to do through the first half of 2022, Jim. Thank you so much for being a part of Global Supply Chain Week. And we are looking forward to seeing what South Carolina Ports does moving forward as well. Thanks, Kaylee. It's great to have you as always. And of course, we have a ton more content coming for your Global Supply Chain Week. This is only day one of five. Looking forward, tomorrow's day is retail. And you definitely don't want to miss that one. Make sure that you're staying active in our live chats on live.freightwaves.com. If you're watching this somewhere else, like on our live stream or on LinkedIn, just go to live.freightwaves.com and get registered so you can enjoy all of the perks that come with that. Don't go away. There's tons more content coming through the rest of your day.